Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here again with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Club de Cinema Important, aka the Important <laughs> Cinema Club. All right, Will is making a face at me. <laughs> I just want to be as highfalutin as possible. And today we're talking about two films by Abel Ferreira. Driller Killer, which was his first narrative theatrical I, I film. Should, I should jump in right now and say I just watched his appearance on Conan O'Brien and Wait, fr- from the mid-90s. And Conan O'Brien said Ferrara. <laughs> Did he? So I think that's how it's pronounced. Ferrara. Ferrara. But I've always said Ferrara. Well... <laughs> Well, all right. Let, who are you going to trust? You or Conan O'Brien? <laughs> We're starting off with some bag. This is why I mispronounced the name yeah, of the director. Abel Ferraro was on in the 90s promoting the funeral, and it was clear that he was high or drunk or something. Uh, one of the Hall of Fame talk show appearances. <laughs> well, we're talking today about Driller Killer, and we're talking about Bad Lieutenant which we, I would arguably say is his most famous film, yeah. most critically lauded film. I think so. It's the one you think of when you think Abel Ferrara. And that came out in 1992. And this brings up the question with your Conan O'Brien bit, which is how has Abel survived this long making movies? I mean, you know, if you were here now, I'd ask him. I, I, think, I think it's probably, uh, probably passion for the cinema. <laughs> That's what keeps him alive? That I, he keeps I, going? I don't know. <laughs> I remember before... Not his friggin' doctor. <laughs> I really got into his films because he's a guy who, when I would read about him, basically like coked up nutsoid would come up yeah. every time that I read about him. I remember reading a story... Literally heroin addicted. Heroin addicted at, too. At the time. I, he said that in, in uh, Interview Magazine in 2012. So that's my source. And he's almost consistently kept making films. There's been very few lulls. Yeah. From when he started up to now where he makes kind of European films that usually cage cinema love to put in their top 10 <laughs> and which I had never even heard of until I read that issue of Cage Cinema. <laughs> it's, but he keeps working with pretty big names too, like William Defoe, Christopher Walken. Um, he keeps getting these people to come back and work with him. So he can't be that crazy when he makes movies. I mean, that's a, an eternal mystery. There's a documentary about him called Abel Ferrara Not Guilty, mm. which follows him around for like five or six days in New York. And I mean, he seems like a shambling mess of a man. <laughs> hey, can I tell you about the time when I met Abel Ferrara? What, go ahead? Well, I actually, I didn't actually meet him. It was, uh, I was at the New York Film Festival premiere of 444, Last Day on Earth. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, buzzing around the lobby uh, like an excited man with a film at a film festival. And I was kind of like shadowing him, like, Like, I don't know if I want to approach him. Well, no, I knew that I didn't want to approach him (laughs) because what am I going to say to him? I just wanted to like eavesdrop on him and look at him. And then he turned around and he walked into me and he said, oh, sorry. (laughs) <laughs> and that was when I met Abel Ferrara. And you're like, and I never washed myself. That, that's right. <laughs> I want some of that magic to wash off. And then months later, I saw him on the street in Little Italy. And I was very excited. <laughs> and uh, you still did not approach him. Well, no, because I, again, I didn't have anything to say. What if it was him. like a long me and Orson Welles-like adventure? Well, you know, I think the fact, for years I was fascinated that he just existed. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered like, what's how does he exist? What, what's he doing now? What's a typical day in the life of Abel Ferrara? Mm. And I feel like just having seen him on those two occasions, like, confirm to me that he's a real person who exists and that's all i need to know but it almost sounds like he's as crazy as you would expect him to be from watching him in his interviews and the stories i've heard because like i was saying one of the first times i heard about him was on some action cinema forum they were talking about king of new york and someone brought up the fact that supposedly the cinematographer of king of new york shot most of the movie because abel was so out of it that he couldn't be there on set to direct the actors oh really uh, well i don't know it looks like an abel ferrara movie. it does and it feels like a film yeah. of his because he definitely fits with in that category of auteur theory that all his films have his distinct stamp on them. Yeah. 
Although it's an evolving stamp over time. Oh, do you think? Let's start with Driller Killer, which is not technically his first film. Oh no, because his first film was uh, the Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy. That's right. <laughs> I can't believe uh, I remember that by heart. W- uh, which was a uh, a porn film that he made in the in the mid seventies, in which uh, which stars among other people one a fresh faced Abel Ferrara. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you? I thought he just came in for the porno inserts, but he did everything. There's a scene in the movie. He said in interviews that the cast and crew's girlfriends were in the movie, and like they'd hired, you know, some uh, some young studs to like be the leading men, and then one of them couldn't get it up, and so they drew straws for one particular scene, and he jumped in. And as he said in the interview, it's bad enough you have to hire a guy to fuck your girlfriend, but then he can't even get it up. <laughs> I have to admit that before I recorded this podcast, I talked to my girlfriend, Emily, and I was like, I can't wait to hear Will's uh, impersonation of Abel. I know, I'm like Rich Little. (laughs) (laughs) And so Driller Killer was a film he made after that. And Driller Killer surprisingly got quite a bit of infamy, most notably because it was put on the Video Nasties list in England. Yes, almost entirely, I think, because of the video box, which was a graphic picture of a guy with a drill in his head. I hadn't revisited this movie in a long time, and what I remembered of it was that it was a boring slog that wasn't worth sitting through. Well, I agree that it's a bit of a boring slog. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But watching it again, and I actually watched it after Bad Lieutenant, was that I was actually kind of entranced by it. Mm -hmm. And the story is really not anything it's to shake a stick at it's abel ferrera uh am i saying his name wrong still yeah for ferrara ferrara tomato tomato it's about abel ferrara who stars in the film as a frustrated painter who basically just whiles away his days feeling the encroachment of this awful late 70s New York and all the crime and stuff like that, which (laughs) drives him crazy, I guess. And he starts killing people with a drill. There's a great scene early in the movie that's just kind of documentary footage of the sad vagrants of the neighborhood. And and you actually see one like vomit on the ground. (laughs) Yeah, with just like stringy mucus. (laughs) And it's nasty. And Abel in the movie is, I believe, hilarious every time he opens his mouth did you know that during the time that he was making that movie he also made a a short film that sadly doesn't exist anymore where he played uh, keith richards wait what i i know it was i can't remember what it was called but like the same crew who made driller killer made this short film about keith richards uh, supposedly in solidarity with keith richards over a drug bust uh and like God, I would love to see Abel Ferrara as Keith Richards. I mean, they look sort of similar and at this time. And it's not that much of a stretch, right? Because yeah. Abel is pretty... I'm sure like... Abel's done the research to be able to, <laughs> to play that role. And so it's a horror movie in maybe... like in Something that you learn watching a bunch of Abel's movies is that cinematic you know, structure or templates or something that he doesn't believe in following at all. Because this movie doesn't follow the path that you would expect it to follow. Because the guy starts killing with this drill about 30 minutes into the movie, and you still continue to follow him. There's not even really a protagonist in the film. And I like that it, it like he does go crazy, but it's not like there's some switch that goes off all of a sudden. It's like you're with him, and then he starts killing people, and then you're with him, and then... He continues to kill people it's like for for the first bit of the movie you think this is a guy we're supposed to you know identify with and sympathize with and then all of a sudden he's killing people like in this book over here um abel ferrara the moral vision by brad stevens he was point he was comparing it to henry portrait of a serial killer Mm. where he he made the case that henry portrait of serial killer wasn't as good a movie because it's less disturbing because it makes serial killers out to be like the other people Mm -hmm. you know this there's sort of no implication of the viewer yeah 
while Driller Killer, you're following along with him. And it never even really demonizes what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, I I like to think Abel Ferrara is not into <laughs> killing people. <laughs> but as far as the character. Yeah. And it is still pretty violent in the sense that they obviously found a way to get blood to shoot out of a drill when they... Uh... I think it's a more disturbing movie than most of the movies that were on the video nasties list. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, since it like actually looks like it could be a product of, of the world that it emerged from. Like it looks like it could be a home movie. Can you think of any other movies that are set in that kind of New York that have that griminess and grunginess that those exploitation films usually have? This movie is set kind of in the very early days of the no wave movement, mm-hmm. that, that kind of artistic scene that came out of the Lower East Side, you know, music like Lydia Lunch or that sort mm. of thing. And then filmmakers like Nick Zed or Richard Kern. Which are featured prominently during the film the, yeah. because what happened for people who haven't seen the film and... I don't know if I would give it an outright recommendation. Maybe a recommendation with a little bit of tepidation. I think the people who, like, if you think you want to see Driller Killer, then you should see it. Yeah, but don't expect the, your casual slasher. Because I once had a friend who picked up the DVD and was like, Oh, man, this looks great. Driller Killer. I want to watch it. And I'm like, mm, I don't think that this is really a fun time that you would enjoy. Yeah. And when I think of filmmakers who are working that milieu, it's weird because I think of the films that have came kind of post that, like William Lustig's Maniac and Frank Helen Lauder's Basket Case, which were kind of commenting on that era of Grindhouse as mm. opposed to being situated in them. Oh, did you know that Abel Ferrara claims that Bruce Willis is in this movie? I saw it on IMDb, but yeah, I didn't know if that was true. During the early, during the first, like the second scene when there's a guy who like washes the window of the cab and sticks his head in and he claims that's bruce willis and it could be uh, <laughs> we don't know it, look, it looks a little bit like him did you because you listened to the commentary on driller Kill. well i drifted back and forth on this last viewing between the commentary and the movie itself and the commentary is infamous for i guess commentary fans nobody does better commentaries than abel ferrara because uh like he kind of like mystery science theaters is his own movie because it's obvious it's one of those commentaries where he hasn't watched it in a long time so he's yeah. reacting to what's going on laughing and making um statements about the women appearing on screen yeah like there's a part where the the two the two girlfriends or one of them's his girlfriend and the other one's the girlfriend's girlfriend when they have a shower together and he's just like oh i'm just gonna sit here and watch this so it's Uh. kind of funny that after this movie it would give him enough push to make a bunch of movies each of them kind of growing in scale as he went along because following this which is the great and fantastic miss 45 yeah and after that was, I believe, Fear, Fear City, City yeah. which was a kind of modestly budgeted Hollywood picture, wasn't it? It looks more like a work for hire job, mm. yeah. Which is about a kung fu killer that's uh, murdering people in New York. And only Tom Berenger and Billy D. Williams can save the day. Uh, it's been years since I've seen it. I don't know. That might be true. <laughs> I'm just making it up as I go along. I remember that Billy D. Williams is in it. But after a bunch of pictures, whether they be TV movies or episodes of Crime Story or My- Miami, Miami Vice. Vice. yeah. Um, he ended up making King of New York, which is arguably his biggest studio project. I mean, Christopher Walken, Lawrence Fishburne. Well, I don't, I don't think it's a studio film. It oh, it was, was. It was independently financed by someone in that it wasn't financed and distributed by a studio. Mm. Uh, I think his only studio movies are uh, Body, Body Snatchers. Snatchers and Dangerous Game. Oh, huh, I didn't actually MGM. know that. Yeah. Because after King of New York, which is a really polished film, he made Bad Lieutenant, which right. is... A step back. I don't know if I would say it's a step back technically, but it's not what you would expect. Like if you watch King of New York and then you're like, ooh, I want more of that. It's not his bid for the mainstream. Yes, exactly. Um, So the movie, like I mentioned, was made in 1992 and stars Harvey Keitel as a crazy cop. And that's basically the film. 
Yeah, he's a real nut. <laughs> uh, someone that you would love to imitate, maybe Abel himself. He would. Ah, um... uh, I mean, listen, I don't want to be. I don't want to be a armchair psychologist uh, listen, here. This is what we do on this podcast. <laughs> we armchair psychologize. Well, the movie That's was mostly hard. written by Zoe Lund. Yes, um, Zoe Lund being the woman that started Miss Forty Five. And, and also in Larry Cohen's special effects. Which is a movie I do not like. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I think there's a reason why Abel made her not speak in Miss 45, <laughs> that uh, Larry Cohen did not learn that lesson when he made special How effects. How dare you? But she is actually really good in the few scenes she has in Bad Lieutenant, playing a heroin addict that is giving Harvey Keitel his fix. A little bit is... of art imitating life, you might say. <laughs> because supposedly Zoe Lund was well, a not, heroin not supposedly. She literally died of a heroin <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> we don't know her. We don't want to make a dick. Maybe her family's like, that's not what actually happened. Uh, yeah, that would be awful. So what would you describe the plot of Bad Lieutenant? What are the things that stand out the most for you? Oh, I think that like for any lapsed Catholic uh, moviegoer, there's a little, there's a little something in there for you now to go to a personal standpoint uh were you like a hardcore catholic when you were a kid uh, by I, that i mean like I, I the people around you were influencing you to go in that direction i i guess so. I, I don't know if hardcore catholic is is what i would say well, I, went, I went to i went to church on sundays and i got my first communion and my confirmation because i did all that stuff too we would actually like read from like the bible every night before we went to bed and would have to what we did prayers at night every night before Uh, i did did do prayers at night before which is funny i didn't i never read the bible uh as a kid oh no you didn't have the illustrated one with all the oh yeah i had the illustrated one (laughs) and um, eventually that's just that's just just stories though that just kind of fades away too like when i as i grew older my mother just kind of stopped going to church so i stopped going to church too and then and eventually, I don't know, do you feel guilt about that kind of stuff? Because you said that it reverberates with you a little bit. It's not so much guilt as in just some sort of some of the ideas that the movie engages with are ideas that you engage with as a Catholic. So, like, I'm not I'm not so sure the movie picks up my guilt. It just kind of brings up issues that have always been of interest to me. Like, what are those issues in the film? Well, I mean, the lieutenant is such an irredeemable person and... To what extent can a person be irredeemable and still be redeemed Mm -hmm. or still be forgiven? You know, the lieutenant struggles with that dilemma both for himself and for the two uh, rapists who Mm -hmm. rape the nun. Yeah. For people that don't know, the movie is about the lieutenant, his day-to-day life, and he gets on a case where a nun gets raped by two men in her... I guess her neighborhood, and she says she doesn't want to point the fingers at them. She wants to forgive them, mm-hmm. and the lieutenant kind of struggles with that, trying to understand why she would make that decision. Do you want to talk about Harvey Keitel's performance? Yes, because I think that he kind of like makes the movie. Because like without Harvey Keitel, do you think someone else could have taken that and gone as far as he does as the bad lieutenant? Oh God, I mean, like, I, like it's hard to imagine Christopher Walken. I I'm not who was originally supposed to be the bad lieutenant. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I I think uh, somebody might correct me on this. But I think he ended up turning it down mm. because he said, I know what needs to be done for this performance and I don't think I can do it. Oh, wow. Really? Uh, so Harvey Keitel was offered it. And I was just watching uh, Harvey Keitel's Inside the Actor's Studio appearance where he said that uh, he got he got given the script and then he threw it in the garbage because he was so offended by it. But then he picked it out of the garbage again and was really touched by uh, the way Zoe Lund wrote The Nun. And which is funny because... The script, I was watching some making ofs on the DVD, and they mentioned that Abel usually writes very lean scripts that are like 60 pages. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of lets the actors run with the scene and take it in whatever direction they want to take it. Well, there's that scene where the lieutenant is in church and he falls to his knees and he 
and Jesus appears and he calls him a rat fuck, <laughs> which was just, which is just sort of like a kind of a long interlude of just Harvey Keitel like writhing around making his Wookiee sound. <laughs> I I'm sorry, it's it's sublime acting, but but Harvey Keitel does have that like. <laughs> he also does it in Reservoir Dogs, which he made yeah. just the year before. Do you, um, do you want to see him bad lieutenant? Well, of course you do, where he's like naked and he yeah. has his arms outstretched and he makes that that weird sound. I yeah. mean, what do you even say? <laughs> like, see something like that's that. you just let the cameras roll and he took it in whatever direction that you want to take. The it. thing is, like now, whenever I see Harvey Keitel, like part of me will think, "I've seen you. I've seen you do that." <laughs> <laughs> it can't. It can't be unseen. Well, I mean. Something that I realized watching the movie this time is that it's really funny. Yeah. Like even in like one of the most uncomfortable scenes where Harvey Keitel stops two uh, young women who are in a car and don't have a driver's license from New Jersey. And he starts insinuating that he wants to do sex acts with them to let them go. And supposedly in the script it said Harvey Keitel takes them in alley and makes them do sexual acts. But they just put the camera down and let it roll and let him take it in whatever direction he wants to take it. Which, which is disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I laughed when I saw it. Because what ends up happening is that he makes one of the women... Um, should we Should we, Should we? we say... <laughs> what, mime doing a blowjob? Yeah. While he masturbates pathetically beside the car? <laughs> and then he just sort of, like, after he's done, he just sort of wanders away. Like, I mean, it's horrible. It is horrible. And I mean, it's... But it still has that like really dark humor in the patheticness of it. And when Abel talked about this movie, he also said that it started from the point of cop doing a bunch of terrible yet funny things. Hmm. Because like another scene where he stops a bank robbery and then just grabs like <laughs> chips off the shelf and eats them, then sees a child in front of him and he's like, Oh, your dad's gonna be back soon, as the child like whimpers in the corner. I like the scene where he shoots his car radio. <laughs> uh. This brings up a fact of like what do you associate with a film directed by Abel? Now you've mentioned that before that you kind of got a little bit obsessed or interested in his career before and you watch a lot of his movies. Yeah, well, this was like maybe five or six years ago. So my memory on some of these movies is going to be a little hazy. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated, first of all, by Abel Ferrara as just like somebody who has been making movies for 40 years, Mm -hmm. uh, despite being apparently a bit of a fuck up and despite having no commercial success. Mm -hmm. Uh, King of New York was supposedly a commercial success. Oh, was it? Okay, Mm -hmm. well, very little commercial success. (laughs) And, you know, just the trajectory of his career where he's he started in porn and then did exploitation films. And now he's this Cahiers de Cinema certified... uh, Auteur. Auteur. And, uh, but there's kind of an interesting i don't know if you want to call it spiritual evolution in his movies they they start from a very catholic place driller killer begins with his character visiting a church but there's also a lot of anger in the early ones like you know very few movies are more violent than king of new york Mm -hmm. especially in that shootout towards the end uh but there's a place where where maybe there's a turning point in his movies i think it is with bad lieutenant Mm -hmm. uh because it's a movie about I mean, it is a movie about forgiveness and the possibility of redemption, whereas uh, King of New York, which came just before, is just a very fatalistic movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and all his movies since then, I think, have become progressively more 
I mean, I know that I think at least until recently, yeah, he identifies as a Buddhist now. Yeah, I remember reading that online that that's the position that he's taken now. Maybe after making Body Snatchers, he's like, you know what? This is leading me in a Buddhist direction because that's a really weird film to hire him to direct that. I, it's probably his most mainstream seeming movie, don't mm-hmm. you think? I mean, it feels like a studio movie. Yeah, Body Snatchers being a remake of remake yeah. of Invasion of the Body Snatchers set in the 90s. <laughs> and it's interesting. Is that movie an AIDS metaphor? I are what? all of his movies an AIDS metaphor? I, I don't know. I feel like I heard somebody say that. Out of the retelling of that story, which has had happened uh, twice before then, because there's the Don Siegel version and the Philip Kaufman version. And then when he decided to come in and tell it, he kind of um, shrinks the scope more than the other films have. So it takes place almost on an army base. And you were talking about things having a fatalistic message. This one seems to have an almost uplifting one where the end seems to indicate that they've saved the day and everyone's going to be okay. Oh, I, I, sorry, guys. It's been so long since I've seen it. I can't remember. <laughs> it ends with them bombing a bunch of um, the trucks that are driving the pods around the world. Oh, okay. And I guess maybe that's... I mean, the story was told again in The the Invasion with Nicole Kidman. And that one also has an ending where it's like, we found a cure, everyone's okay. Which brings the question, like, maybe that story can't be told because of studio interference where at the end everyone is doomed. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I know that... Four, have you seen 444, Last Day on Earth? No, I haven't seen that one. Like, that movie seems a little bit more... I mean, I don't want to call it uplifting because it does end with the annihilation of, of mankind. But Willem Dafoe goes to see his friend who's another recovering drug addict. And Willem Dafoe is is debating whether or not to, you know, fall off the wagon the night Mm -hmm. before the end of the world. And his friend says that he wants to remain on the wagon because that's who he, how he wants to go out. So you think that's even more of a positive message than Killer Killer or Miss 45? I mean, there there is something positive about it. And I mean, I don't know, 444 probably has a bit of, uh, of the redemptive power of love in it or something since it's, uh, it, it, Willem Dafoe and his girlfriend in that apartment together. I don't know. I didn't think it was a very good movie. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Abel throws the MP3 player. He's listening to the song against I mean, the wall. I don't know. Good, Fuck. Good on him for making Will it. Will slow. But, yeah. I mean, because Abel, if you read any of his interviews or his comments to a press, is a very angry man. <laughs> like that whole kerfuffle that happened when his film Welcome to New York had the editing problem. I think he had. was right to be angry about that, though, because the, some of the editing things totally changed the meaning of the movie. So what happened was Abel made a movie called Welcome to New York. I believe he sold it to IFC. That one I like, by the way. And IFC decided, oh, we're going to recut it and put it on TV, even though that supposedly he has in all of his contracts now that he has final cut on these movies. I think in that contract, he might have had it so that he, it was final cut as long as he delivered an R rating, but that one had uh, mm. some strong sexual content. <laughs> Where Gerard Depardieu... Uh, Full frontal <laughs> Depardieu. Uh, Frolicked with uh, many naked a woman. Here in Toronto, we got it the Royal in the uncut version. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, so I was I was happy to see... Uh, and have you seen the theatrical cut too? Uh, or the version that was No, added? I've not seen the re-edited version. But I know that Dominic Strauss-Kahn, even though that's not his name in the movie, based on Dominic Strauss-Kahn, the the rape of the hotel maid is made in the re-edited version to look like a flashback from the maid, Mm. which makes it seem as if you know, there's some, some ambiguity to whether or not it happened. Yes. Whereas in Abel Ferrara's director's cut, it just plays out. Which is funny because that sounds like the distributors going, we want to sympathize the main character of this film. Or it might be a legal issue because they already had to change the name from Mm. Dominic Strauss-Kahn and they had to add a disclaimer to the beginning of the movie. Abel Ferrara's film rarely have sympathetic leads. Uh, no. And do you think that's a problem for like mainstream audiences? And that's why his films don't have that success? 
Uh, maybe. I mean, his movies have grown in kind of an artier direction over mm. the last 20 years, I think. They've become, they've become more kind of, I don't know if subjective is the right word, but I know that in the commentary track for King of New York, because I've heard all the able commentary tracks, <laughs> but there's one point where he says that uh, the movie, this is like fascist filmmaking. I wouldn't make a movie like this if you put a gun to my head. He's uh, not a fan of uh, King of New York, it sounds like. Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just represents a different time in his artistic evolution. <laughs> but a, a movie like Go-Go Tales, I think, yeah. has more of an kind of ethereal quality to it. Like, well, it does, it, Go-Go Tales doesn't really tell you what to think at any given moment. Well, that's what the another movie I watched, Rxmas, has that kind of feeling, which is kind of like a yeah. gangster tale, but there's not really to a much, fault i yeah, would say not much of a plot going on and what plot does happen is kind of ditched like with a shrug yeah. until it you know weakens to an ending what's the final like caption at the end of that movie um, like doesn't it say something like and then giuliani was elected yes and like what, what what conclusion am i supposed to draw that that this drug trade never happened anymore because yeah. Giuliani was in or, or I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I, Abel's movie are so defined by New York. Like mm-hmm. almost all his films take place in New York. And there's that like lived in quality that doesn't really exist in New York anymore. I mean, you live there. Did you feel when you would walk around the streets of New York? Did you have the, you like, I'm like, it's like I'm in an Abel Ferreira movie. I mean, the thought crossed my mind. Well, just because I was watching a lot of Abel Ferreira movies <laughs> at the time. So like sometimes I would like go to filming locations of movies and it would just be totally different like you know where the porn theater from taxi driver is now you know a broadway family children's theater (laughs) (laughs) and you did you like think back and be like i wish it used to be like this i wish 42nd street still existed people were shooting up in the uh aisles and stuff like that well you know there there are still a couple of places over on 8th avenue like uh like show world the porn shot that are still holding on (laughs) really because did you uh, did you this is off topic but uh but did you know that in in Times Square, everything has to be at least 51% non-porn material at any store? I did not know so that. So if you go to the few remaining porn stores around there, like, and you go to the basement, it's like full of like old magazines and crossword puzzles and stuff <laughs> to just to just to meet the quota. That's a crazy rule. <laughs> yeah. That was something that came in on Giuliani's watch. Oh, damn yeah. Giuliani cleaning I, up the streets I, and stuff I, like that. I know. God forbid you should like <laughs> That's like that's a view that a lot of like filmmakers like the aforementioned Frank Helen Lauder and William Lustig, they have like that those nostalgic glasses for those days when it used to be like that. I mean, part of me would like to spend an afternoon in those <laughs> days, you know, just to see what it was like and maybe like go to the Kung Fu theater or, yeah. or whatever. And I mean, I, I don't have a lot of love for what Times Square is now, which mm-hmm. is kind of this over-commercialized, ugly, awful thing. But it just used to be a different kind of ugly. And that's that's the thing, right? I also don't like that like you can't actually afford to live in New York anymore unless well, you're, there's unless that you're too. rich. That's yeah. the other downside of it. I was going to say, because I don't think that Abel probably looks nostalgically back on those days. Because, he lives in Rome now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because his films were also filled with like violence and depravity. There's no... like. Uh, warm feelings toward those times yeah it's kind of like him saying i live in a nightmare and i hate living here (laughs) this is where i have to live yeah um so do you what would you recommend for someone who wants to get into like his filmmaking world what would be the first film that you would say oh watch this one because you 
It'll help you out. Well, part of me wants to say Bad Lieutenant since mm. it's the first one I ever saw and since it's the most, it's the one that everyone thinks of when they think of Abel Ferrara. But it's also such an abrasive and difficult experience. But I think that if you let them know that it's going to be abrasive and difficult like mm. that, because I remember when I was getting into movies like this and I the Bad Lieutenant cover looks so cool. It's like Harvey Keitel with like a pistol yeah. at the camera and the old snap box had like... Uh, tango and cash style like <laughs> markings around the sides yeah and you're gonna expect something either like reservoir dogs or you know 10 things to do in denver when you're dead there's another poster like out there that's able ferrara you know naked from the naked scene i think much better prepares people Wait, for these what? well you don't see his dick on the poster obviously oh, but it's like you mean Harvey Keitel. Oh, yeah, Harvey Keitel, sorry. I was like, man, that's a weird poster. Well, and yeah, Abel is you know, aren't on they it. one and the same, ultimately? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're looking for redemption. They feel yeah. like they've done horrible things, and they want to know if they can be forgiven. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I think Bad Lieutenant is a great starter point, because something that people don't really talk about is that while his films are very abrasive and difficult to watch, they're also, like, really stylish and good-looking. Oh, yeah. He's had the same cinematographer, Ken Kelsch, mm. for, ever since Driller Killer. Ken Kelsch didn't. Well, there were some movies in the 80s that Ken Kelsch didn't do. I think that he went, it was actually like Driller Killer, and then he came back for Bad Lieutenant. Yeah, and then ever since then, except for Pasolini, mm-hmm. uh, he's been his DP. And yeah, even even Driller Killer looks really good, mm-hmm. actually. I mean, even though it's an ugly movie in some ways, the lighting is really incredible. Mm. And they supposedly shot all gorilla style. Like they threw the camera on their shoulder, and at one point, Harvey Keitel like walked through a building, a club, and they just followed him walking. Yeah. through the push of people and that adds a kind of immediacy to the film that it seems that he was kind of struggling against King of New York which doesn't have that mm-hmm. kind of immediacy yeah. because it is glossy and you know slick while Bad Lieutenant is the polar opposite of that kind of stuff there's a lot of uh, varying too I think in the visual style of Abel Ferrara's movies if you see Welcome to New York it's kind of this flat affectless digital mm-hmm. photography which is beautiful at times mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, a, a cinematography that kind of mirrors the interstate of the main character, I think. And this brings up the question is, how much do you think Abel brings to his movies overall? Like, do you think he directs on set? I'm asking these questions. I, I think so. I mean, I think he has like a... I know that he has a pretty close-knit group of collaborators over the years, and they probably have a certain shorthand that they're able to mm-hmm. use, and they probably have shared artistic priorities. It's tough to wrap my head around when I hear a story of like... Um, a writer, Drew McQueenie, once wrote that he went to a screening with Abel of a movie. I think it was one of Abel's movies, too. And then Abel started yelling at the screen <laughs> as it was playing. And the woman in front of him started getting angry. And then Abel started yelling at her. And it ended up being Madonna. And I That's mean, funny. <laughs> they famously didn't get along when they made a film called Dangerous Game, I yeah. believe. Which is about filmmaking itself. So. Yeah. But if the guy keeps being able to crank out movies, like, all the power to him. Yeah, I, I'll, if he keeps making them, I'll keep seeing them. Uh, <laughs> did, did you see Pasolini? No, I didn't see Pasolini. That being the one with William Dafoe playing the director, right? Yes. And uh, But I thought you mentioned that you didn't like it that much. I, I didn't like it that much, although, I mean, it's probably a little bit better in reflection. It's on the last day of Pasolini's life, and it sort of cuts back and forth between stuff he was doing on the last day and... Abel Ferrara trying to film Pasolini's last screenplay, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know, those two strands didn't really gel for me. And I didn't think the the scenes from Pasolini's screenplay were very compellingly uh, photographed. Yeah, or just compellingly conceived and brought to life. Yeah. Didn't really look like a Pasolini movie either, which I mm-hmm. guess must have been a conscious choice, but a baffling conscious choice <laughs> to me. 
Although, you know, there are, there are scenes from Paslini that I remember. I mean, I'm glad that he tried to tried to ho- focus in on Paslini at just one moment in time. Mm, as opposed to doing the big biopic thing. Yeah, to, and because so much of the movie is about Paslini's philosophy at that time in his life, you know, like, like any... F- like many philosophers, Pasolini's philosophy changed over time. Mm-hmm. And this brings up also, do you think that other filmmakers have been influenced by Abel as far as their filmmaking style? Or is he like an individual that no one else can touch because no one can do what he does? I wonder if... Like the gangster film cycle that kind of happened in the 90s, maybe like uh, yeah, Boys I... in the Hood and uh, Menace maybe. to Society. Maybe. I mean, I heard uh, Tarantino praise King of New York in an interview like mm. in the in the early part of his career. But Abel Ferrara, even though he is an auteur, like his, he's done so many different styles mm-hmm. and so many different genres over the years, it's kind of hard to get a handle on him. <laughs> well, I mean, usually what I associate with him is New York grimy and some kind of criminal element. Sure, but I mean, like a movie like King of New York and a movie like Go-Go Tales and Pasolini and The Addiction. <laughs> or New Rose Hotel. <laughs> or New Rose Hotel, like a William Gibson uh cyberpunk thing starring asia argento yeah who he dated at one point wow yeah yeah yeah. Uh, gossip for you (laughs) crazy able i mean we didn't actually even talk about the addiction which is it is a weird film in his filmography i don't know if i can weigh in intelligently on that one but what you saw recently what did you think uh i really liked it because it it's uh almost in a stylish in a way that none of his movies really are and that it's very controlled. It's shot mm-hmm. in black and white in very rich whites and blacks. And it's about a woman who's bitten by a vampire and then turns into a vampire herself. And it's obviously like the illusions aren't even subtle. Like, I mean, right when she gets bitten, she goes to a doctor and he's like, no, it's not AIDS. It couldn't happen this fast. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Christopher Walken shows up as another vampire and compares it to being a heroin addict. And it's actually a good companion piece of something like Miss 45, both of them being about uh, female characters who go down a certain path and are kind of destroyed mm-hmm. by those obsessions that they have. Because in Miss 45, it's like a death wish riff that is completely self-destructive by the end. Mm. Because it's a film that's also very difficult because you go in being like, oh, it'll be like a female death wish. And it's not really that at all. But it's very entertaining. It is very entertaining. And he almost has a style in this 45 that he does have in The Addiction, which is a more controlled kind Mm. of like dolly-based moves. Everything is very hermetically sealed while that doesn't exist in something like Bad Lieutenant or even Driller Killer. It's certainly the best of those rape revenge movies because it's the one that feels the most honest like Mm -hmm. there's a scene early on after uh zoe lund is raped for the first time and she goes back to her uh back to her apartment and there's a close-up of her torso just as she's taking off her shirt and then just as she's about to take it off a male hand like grabs her Mm -hmm. with like this big shock of music and the effect is just so so shocking and awful that for the rest of the movie you're kind of on edge yeah, like and you don't you, want to see anything like that it ever sort of again. announces that this isn't gonna be a titillating movie and i mean that's a problem with a lot of those rape revenge films is that they're positioning yeah. themselves as titillation yeah and you know for a lot of people who do want to who haven't seen miss 45 and like i don't want to see it because it has that subject matter you don't have to worry about it being like it's exploitative but not in the necessary sense you think it is <laughs> not in the way she, that i spit on your grave is no exploitative. even though she does get raped Two times in a row. Once by Abel himself. <laughs> yeah. With... A Hitchcock-like cameo. <laughs> oh, God. In conclusion, do you think the lieutenant deserves to be forgiven? 
like the bad lieutenant in his movie at the yes. end of the movie, does he deserve to be forgiven by like a higher power? Yeah. Well, seeing how I don't believe in higher powers, no, because I don't think that can happen. But so you're kind of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. No, God. no, no. That's not what I mean. I believe in forgiveness. It, but the way that the movie goes about I believe in street justice. <laughs> do you believe the ending of The Bad Lieutenant? And I mean, for people who haven't seen the movie, we'll spoil it right now, which is that he gets $30,000 and he gives it to the rapist of the nun. And he basically goes like, start another life. Yeah. How do you feel about that ending? Uh, ambivalent somewhat. I mean, it's powerful in the context of the movie. Uh, it's powerful in the context of this like fuck up trying to navigate the waters of redemption and but is he trying to save himself or is he is it in like altruistic act i don't know <laughs> i'm sorry I, I can't make i can't make that decision <laughs> you have to make that, that decision you're a microphone's in front of you that's, and you have to lay down the law forever of what you think of the ending of bad Lieutenant. it's a great it's a great question and mm-hmm. it's uh, i'd like to leave it as a question <laughs> and one that i would pose to the viewer yeah let's 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 turn it on them <laughs> You know, let's and watch it. the movie and be like, "Do you believe?" Because, you know, in the movie, I personally don't know if it's the lieutenant's place to forgive them. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think it's the place. Yeah, of it. but the the nun has forgiven them, right? Yeah. So is he just extending that forgiveness that she has given them? And at the like, same, may, maybe he is. I mean, I feel like he, like if we're, if we're pretending that this is a real situation <laughs> and he's a real lieutenant, like, like I think you know his, his obligation is to is to speak for you know society. <laughs> Because he is the higher power in this context. Well, yeah, I don't know. So what you're trying to say is that you believe that the police Whatever you're going to say, yes. The authority over well, everything. Uh, yeah. I, I believe in martial law. <laughs> I mean, the other problem... Isn't that the, isn't that the message of Bad Lieutenant is, is martial law? Because, you know, the thing is that, like, to open the can of worms that's Bad Lieutenant, you also have to deal with Christianity as a concept. Yeah. Where forgiveness in that sense is something that I don't know. Like, I believe that everyone should be forgiven if they go out and they want that. But the people um, who committed the act in Bad Lieutenant, like, do not seek forgiveness. Yeah. Themselves. Like, that. I think that is central to the idea of forgiveness in Christianity is mm-hmm. that the person has to seek it. And if you don't seek it, you will burn in the fires of hell forever. Uh I mean, I think opinions of that vary from sect to sect. Yeah, because <laughs> you're listening to the religion pod. <laughs> Will Sloan and Justin the Clue. Um, so Abel Ferreira, our final thoughts on that? Good filmmaker. I like him. I mean, watching, out there. watching Bad Lieutenant and how bad the lieutenant is, I would just kept thinking, like, how does he, like, function in a way that he could, like... When did he reach this point that he was, like, this terrible a cop? And how did he continue going on that path? Well, he's middle-aged. I mean, it it happened probably over the years. Uh, I don't think it happened overnight. (laughs) And at the same time, I said, you know what? If the bad lieutenant can keep working, I'm sure Abel Ferreira can, too. That's that's inspirational, isn't it? (laughs) And my name's Justin Clue. My name's Wilson. And you've been listening to The Important Cinema Club.